0: Well today, uh, the scripture we're uh, starting with is in um, Mark 223. We're b- or, uh, starting actually with verse 18. We're bouncing back this week because uh, we had uh, some spring break. I hope you had a great spring break at least until about 11:30 last night. and then I hope you're over that hump because the reality is we made it to the final four. That's awesome, isn't it? Um, so other than that, I hope your spring break was really great and I hope it's continuing to go well. Uh, I was really excited to be able to have Jeremy speak last Sunday, not just because I got a Sunday off and got to uh, rest and relax, and, and, uh, but just because uh, every time Jeremy speaks, I love hearing him. I didn't get a chance to hear him because I was gone last week, but I'm going to listen to him sometime on the web as soon as we get that up. It's been delayed this week. I apologize if you've been looking for that. Uh, but Jeremy is wonderful, gives us a lot of stuff, and, and I just want to applaud in general him and our staff as a whole. Uh, we are blessed with a wonderful staff here so today we're flipping back a little bit mainly because uh, um, i decided to split a message into two parts after we'd already signed jeremy what he was talking about so we're going to step back in mark uh, to starting at 218 let's read that together now john's disciples and the pharisees were fasting some people came and asked jesus how is it that john's disciples and the disciples of the pharisees are fasting but yours are not jesus answered How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old and make the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined." No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath day, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along, and they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, Have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. And he looked around at them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out, and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Lord, thank you that your word brings life to us, and we ask that you would speak to us today through this. In Jesus' name, amen. So a few weeks ago, we started a sub-series. While we're continuing to look at the real Jesus, instead of the made-up Jesus or our ideas of who we think Jesus is, we're spending time looking at the eyewitness accounts of Jesus himself to discover who he really is. And we started a sub-series a couple weeks ago that we titled Provocative and Practical. Because the texts that we're looking at, the interactions of Jesus that we're looking at over the f- past few weeks, and, and again, uh, the week after Easter as well, are some of the most provocative and practical things that Jesus said and did. We made the contention in the first part of this message series, the, 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 today is part two of Destroying Religion, and the first time that I was with you two weeks ago, we, we made a couple assertions, and let me just review them briefly. We stated then that Jesus actually spends far more time, if you really read the Gospels, the eyewitness accounts, he spends far more time attacking religion than he does talking about the sins that we overtly think are bad. And we also made the assertion that Jesus in his process here is not just trying to reform religion, but he's trying to actually destroy it and there's a very big difference. He's trying to replace it with himself. We further went on, and we're going to illustrate this even a little bit deeper today and a little bit more today. We further went on to talk about the fact that that this religious paradigm that Jesus is trying to destroy, it's not just, it just doesn't affect the religious people. People who are unchurched and irreligious are equally responding to this religious paradigm of what it means to have faith and what it means to be good and who God is. It's just that the one crowd is trying to perform according to this, and the other crowd is questioning it and reacting and rejecting it, but still responding to the same paradigm. Today, as we look at part two, we're going to see how Jesus, in, in many ways, in many ways, destroys religion by bringing the cross closer to home in our lives. Now the text today starts off with uh, this question of Jesus, which is a very predictable question if you're in a religious mindset to people. So, oh, okay, so that's not an alarm we have to pay attention to. That's a local alarm, somebody else's local alarm, not our local alarm. Um, So he he's responding to this question about prayer and fasting. It's very predictable. If if you're caught up in religion or you're you're hanging around religious people and you, you step back a minute, you'll see this type of thing happen on a regular basis. So the passage right before this, we see Jesus confronting this whole religious paradigm by going to eat with this guy named Levi, who's a tax collector, who's the epitome of evil, the epitome of traitor to the Jewish culture and the Jewish religion. And He makes the religious people uncomfortable and what usually happens when you're struggling with religion is the minute somebody steps on one of your rules, you kind of start to ask these questions to try to prove that you're more spiritual than other people. So these guys respond to this time by trying to get Jesus by saying, okay, I'm more spiritual. Why do my disciples and even the disciples of John who they were disagreeing with fast and pray and yours don't fast and jesus responds to this whole idea of religion by saying you know religion basically saying religion in religion you look for rules and you look for ways to do things and jesus is reminding us in his response that it's not it's more about paying attention to what god is doing now to his presence among us to his leading to his Showing us how to live these rules now in the current situation. And Jesus does this by simply saying this What you don't realize that's happening right now is the bridegroom is here. And who goes to a wedding feast and fasts? It's ridiculous, right? Who goes to a wedding feast and fasts? But yet, we struggle a lot of times in our own lives and we see other people struggle with rules all the time that don't make sense in the current situation i mean just a silly illustration how many of you have ever experienced a rule that just doesn't make sense now there's a story about a, a young newly married couple and it's their first easter and the wife is making the ham she's getting it ready she's getting ready to put it in the oven and the oven's all heated up and preheated and the husband walks in and goes you can't put the ham in like that she goes, why? She says, well, you have to cut this piece of the piece of the ham off before you could put it in. And she goes, well, why would I want to waste that? And she says, well, my mom, and he already made the biggest mistake of a newlywed. He says, my mom was a great cook. And she always cut that piece of the ham off and said it was bad. And so she says, well, let's call your mom and find out. So they call the mom, they call the mom, and she says, well, why do you cut this off? And her response is, well, because it's bad. And they said, well, why? Well, she said, because my mom always did it. Well, luckily, grandma's alive, right? So they call grandma. They get grandma on the phone. And they say, grandma, why, why, do, you, why do you always cut this piece of the ham off and don't cook that? And, and, and grandma says, well, I don't know. And they say, well, mom said you said it was bad. And she says, the only reason I cut that piece of the ham off is because it didn't fit in my pan. <laughs> Have you ever had those kind of rules? I remember one of those kinds of rules when I, when I used to, in, in my last job before coming here, I was overseeing credentialing of ministers, and one of, the, one of the rules was you had to have a professionally produced by a photography place picture for the applicant's picture. It didn't matter that the printers in our offices and our homes printed equally good pictures. That was not acceptable or that you could get an electronic picture. And the rule was left over from the age when you could stick those on a scanner and you couldn't get a good picture and so the printers weren't good so they ruled out printers, personal printers. It's just one of those things that you had to fight with for two or three years to go, why do we do this? You've experienced those, haven't you? The nature of religion leaves us with expectations and habits and rules that are not responsive to real life and even worse they cut us off from a relationship. Jesus goes on the attack towards these kinds of ideas and he illustrates it this way he says you cannot you can't repair a tear in an old garment by taking a brand new piece of garment that's not been shrunk that's And and replacing that. Why? Because the old garment's already shrunk and if you stick this new piece that has never been shrunk on there and then you wash it, the next time you wash it, it's going to shrink and it's going to make that tear worse. And then he goes on and illustrates it another way. He says, neither can you take new wine and put it in old wineskins. Why? Because those old wineskins have already been used. They've already been had wine in that fermented and stretched them and made them brittle, and if you put the new wine in, it's going to ferment and it's going to blow them up and you're going to lose everything. It's going to go all over the ground. And you see, religion doesn't allow us to live in the present, to fully engage how God is acting in our lives now, working through us in mission, Today, because we want to patch our old traditions, our old ways, the ways we've experienced God in the past, in essence, we want to live our faith through a pattern, not a relationship. And that's the difference between, one of the differences between religion and Jesus. Religion lives out of a pattern. Jesus is inviting us to this dynamic relationship And Jesus goes on in the next two stories that are shown back to back of encounters regarding the Sabbath to put the nails in the coffin of religion. And he does it so well that the people who are religious on both sides, the irreligious and the religious, both of whom are reacting to this same thing, want to kill him as a result of this. In fact, I would submit to you that a lot of the conflict, most of the conflict we experience in churches, is about this. It's about we step on religion and religion and rules become higher than relationship. In these stories, we're going to see the utter futility of religion and we're going to see the sufficiency of Christ in this. And I want to just make you think this way just for a second. Even though these two illustrations that Jesus is giving, these two examples, deal with the Sabbath, you could take the idea of the Sabbath out of this and put many other religious rules in place of that and the truth applies to all of it together. Now, this has been really interesting to me that this came up at this time, because partly, partly because in my own devotional time, I've been reading in the Old Testament, and I, I've been consistently amazed. I don't know why, I mean, it just, it just hit me really hard the last couple of weeks as I've been reading the Old Testament. How often the Sabbath and the keeping of the Sabbath is mentioned. And taught, and how strongly the Old Testament speaks about it. This is this is a really important concept. And yet, the Sabbath in Jesus' day was riddled with volumes of man-made rules and definitions of what it meant to keep it, what work was, and what work wasn't, and what it meant to rest and what it didn't mean. So we see some of those things rearing their heads in these stories that we see that Jesus is. That the eyewitnesses are, are recounting. In the first one, we see the disciples walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath hungry. And the, and, and the grain fields are ready to be harvested. And they reach out and pick the stuff off the, off the ears and they eat it. And, and the rules are just baffling, aren't they? Because the reality is these disciples could have gone home to their home and they could have taken the grain that was picked two days earlier that was now stored in a bowl and they could have reached in with their hand and picked it up and put it in their mouth and that would have been perfectly acceptable. But they can't walk through, according to the rules of the Sabbath and religion, they can't walk through the field and pick the grains off and put it to their mouth. One is work and one isn't. And it just seems ridiculous doesn't it and then in the next example we see the 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 religious leaders trying to trap jesus in doing the work of ministry on the sabbath a man with a shriveled hand comes in and they're they're trying to say i wonder if he's going to heal him and if he heals that's classified as work because he's a rabbi and that means that's work if he does that and the question we have to ask ourselves in, in setting this up is, what is a day of rest? What is the Sabbath all about? Is it, is it not focused on restoring the, the depleted? Is it not about repairing the broken? Is it not about strengthening the things that are weak? Is it, is it not about reveling in the goodness of what God has done in the past week and the past year? But you see, living under religion inevitably in areas of our lives as ridiculous as we make these sound and as they come across to us right now leads us to this place where we miss the forest for the trees and and leads us to the place where like the pharisees it's so easy for our hearts to become as shriveled or even more shriveled than the man's hand that day religion leads us to this place of judgmental insecurity because we need to protect our own power, protect our own control, protect our own definition of why we're good people. It's really about a desire for control. And it's it's obvious when we read these stories, isn't it? But it's so easy for each of us to fall prey to the same power of religion because of our own desire to control our own lives our own desire to have everything lined up to know the exact expectations and know that we're fulfilling the exact expectations to have all that feeling in order and jesus answer to this religiously bound critics these religiously brown critics is the sabbath was made for man not man for the sabbath and then which is lawful on the sabbath to do good or to do evil to save life or to kill and it's an obvious answer but God has many laws that he gives us. He says there are many things that these practices in your life are good and these are not. These moral things are right and these are wrong. He gives us many rules, many laws, many instructions in the Bible. And it's so easy for us to get lost in the details of those things. Instead of remembering to see God's heart, his intents his intent for us, how how much he loves us. Religion leaves us, as the text says, stubborn, entrenched, unmoldable, hard. Because under religion, when we face these laws and these rules, it becomes a burden to us. We start asking the question, how can I ever measure up? And We either give up and reject it, responding to religion, or we try to perform in it, and either way it enslaves us. The gospel, when we understand what Jesus is trying to teach us in these things, that same moral law, those same recommended, commanded practices become blessing. They become gifts to us that leads us to freedom of movement in our life and flourishing. And I've said it before, and I I won't continue to say it because we'll we'll be moving on to different topics as as the text moves on to different topics. Most people in the world believe that you get to God and you relate to Him by being good, by doing the right things. Even Even if we mentally assent to the idea that we're saved by grace, the way we live and the way we respond to God still usually says we need to be good enough. And there's a million variations of religion. I mean, there's variations that are nationalistic where you take on the characteristic of this culture and this and this nation or this tribe, and therefore you are good and you are, you are of, of the faith. And there's a spiritualistic approach to religion, which you know, if you experience these deeper layers of experience with God and these levels of transformation of your consciousness, then you then you're better than And there's formally legalistic religions that have these very rigid codes, and if you obey, then you're okay. And that's the way they are. But the real Jesus and real Christianity is completely opposed to all of that. The real Christianity, the gospel, is simply that I am fully forgiven. I am accepted in Jesus, and therefore, I obey out of an overflowing heart of joy and gratitude, out of an overflowing heart of peace and happiness. Many of you who have faced churches that have been very legalistic have probably done like I did at one one point, and still I think all of us are tempted to do this. We respond to that legalism by, by declaring a freedom and moving away from those things and saying, I don't have to do those things. I don't have to live that way. And yet, when we do that, all we're doing is still acting out of a religious paradigm. We're just acting a little bit more like those who are irreligious and, 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 and reject that stuff all for the sake, usually the, the sake of the argument that we can relate to people better in doing that. And yet, the difference is not in the obedience and the actions. The beauty of what Jesus is doing here and what he's done in the previous texts and the ones that we're going to look at in the future here is that he's declaring that the Sabbath is good. It's right. He's declaring that prayer and fasting are appropriate, good things to do. He's declaring that biblical morals are good. The difference is not in the obedience and the actions. The difference is in the heart and the motivation that derives those actions. Kind of like, kind of like the questions, am I being saved because I'm better than others Or am I saved and therefore out of a full, grateful, exuberant heart, overflowing with peace and joy, I choose to obey because it's healthy and good and best? Am I performing religiously better than others because I am so moral and I have such good habits? Or or am I performing religiously so much better because I'm not so legalistic and therefore I'm more friendly to people who are irreligious and on mission better? Or am I so desperately in need of salvation like everyone is? no different than anyone else, that I am so grateful for God's forgiveness. I'm so amazingly blessed by his love. I'm so hungry, and I enjoy the goodness of the habits and the rules, and I choose to obey because of that. This is one of the only texts where I, I, I remember, I'm sure there's other, maybe a couple other places, but one of the only texts where I remember that says Jesus is angry. He's angry at the callousness of the Pharisees, of the lack of compassion. He's angry because the rules are, are, are more important than relationship, because the rules are more important than love. He's, he's angry for all those things we've talked about in the past, about the difference between religion and, and, and gospel. But he's also angry because he so desperately loves even the religious leaders He so desperately loves them that he's willing to continue down the path of staying close to them, consistently teaching around them, consistently trying to reach out to them, even though he knows he will suffer abuse and even death at their hands. He is so desperately in love with them and so angry that they will not receive it and receive the freedom that he is that even the first thing he says when he's on the cross, which we remember this week, is speaking to them saying, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do, what they do. But there's other people who are angry here as well. And I think as we talk about that and look at that, it maybe will give some of us perspective and compassion in places where we've been hurt and disillusioned in the past in church. Verse six says, "And the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Two weeks ago, we talked a little bit about who the Pharisees are, and I'll just do a quick reminder. The Pharisees are the religious common people's Jewish conservative group who's kind of like a political party religious group uh, trying to resist the Hellenization of Rome, trying to protect conservative Jewish moral values and biblical truth and culture. They're the champions of that for the Jews. The Herodians, on the other hand, who we see in this text are exactly what it sounds like. They're the followers of Herod. Herod was the ruling authority appointed by Rome there, and the Herodians were the ones who were given the job to Hellenize the culture, to impose the culture of Rome and Greece on wherever, whatever culture they conquered. These were the ones who were supposed to impose the Roman and Greek way of thinking about sexuality, about religion, about family life, about everything. The Pharisees, and the Herodians are polar opposite enemies of one another. And yet, when the religious paradigm is stepped on, when Jesus steps on this, both the irreligious who are controlled by religion and the religious who are controlled by religion come together. We have an odd couple fighting Jesus. For many of you, you've observed friends who you respected, Maybe Christian leaders that you respected who when a rule was stepped on of religion, abandoned relationship and decided to go and ally themselves with somebody who months earlier they would have said I will never ally myself with become an ally of that person. And they have fought you or fought other people or you've seen them hurt people. It happens all the time. I've seen it hundreds of times. And it it helps me, at least, to give it some perspective to say, when that happens, I know it's not about me. I know it is because we just stepped on something that needs to be gone through and forgiven. When we step on a rule, religion rears its ugly head. Why is that? It's because religion, at its core, is really just about protecting ourselves, our image of ourselves. It's its about a way of covering over the parts of our identity that we're ashamed of, the things that we fear failure in, the things that we know we're weak in, that we don't think we're good enough with. It's a way of covering ourselves over so we can have this veneer of rest, this veneer of things being okay, instead of really experiencing the rest of the completed work of Jesus that allows us to be completely open, for people to see who we are and for us to still be at peace and stay in relationship with people just like Jesus stays in relationship. The gospel is neither religion or irreligion. We see Jesus call for both to change. We see it even just in close proximity in in the eyewitness account in John. John 3, Jesus meets with Nicodemus, a, a religious ruler of the day, and he challenges him to change. And even as we look again throughout the rest of the gospel, we see Jesus continuing to do this with with religious leaders. Why? Because he loves them, because he wants them to be free. But then in the very next chapter in John 4, we see Jesus also confront this pagan eclectic spirituality woman at the well person and call her to change because Jesus calls both religious and irreligious people to repent and change. Tim Keller talks about it this way. He says, each of these two parties represent two approaches to religion. In one approach, the moralist approach, religion is about moral conformity. I lead a really good life, and therefore I'm okay. In the other approach, it's about self-discovery. I decide what is right and good for me. And Keller goes on to say, both parties are trying to be their own savior. Both of these approaches lead to self-righteousness. On the case of the moralists, good people are in and bad people are out. Self-righteous. On the part of self-discovery people, progressive, open-minded, tolerant people are in and the judgmental bigots are out. In other words, progressive, open-minded people are self-righteous about self-righteousness. We are so, they're they're basically saying we are so much better than people who think they're better than us. Self-righteous. Even more profoundly, Keller poignantly states, he says, the gospel doesn't say that the good are in and the bad are out. Nor does it say that the moral ones are in and the open-minded ones are not. The gospel says the humble are in. And the proud are out. The humble are in. And the proud are out. The ones who are honest, who are open, who are repentant are in. The ones who stubbornly protect their image, are not open and honest, do not repent, are out. And so much of our life and faith walk is defined by being in religion or reacting to religion instead of surrendering and accepting God's definition of who we are, acknowledging without defense our weaknesses and our failings, trusting God's goodness to heal us and restore us and to find his peace even in the process of not yet being perfect. You see, our default as human beings, churched or unchurched, religious or irreligious, is to go back to religion to try to save ourselves to get comfortable in our growth we we get comfortable in our growth and we progress to a certain point and and we become stale we become religious again we become the self-righteous experts who we've got it figured out and we're we're about all about advice giving rather than just living honestly and in both the strength that god has brought and the weakness that god has brought that has has not been dealt with yet or the self-righteousness about being better than other people and we reject the rule and the salvation of god reject relationship with him and his ways for us because it's about us discovering and therefore we live in selective obedience instead of being obedient in all things if you're here today and you're skeptical about christianity and you think that christianity and religion are the same they are not if Jesus were here in the flesh today, he would cut right through that stuff. He would cut through your, through your critique. He would cut through the boundaries you have, whether you're religious or not, and he would show love and relationship that goes beyond any of our categories and show us how futile religion is. I mean, the gospel and relationship is amazing. Jesus shows us how he does this in regard to the Sabbath in an even more profound way in the passage. First, Jesus says that we do need the Sabbath. He affirms the fact of the basic principles of the Sabbath. We need time set aside to rest, replenish, to reflect, to celebrate, to enjoy God. And He does it all while he's also trampling on the legalism surrounding it. When he says the Sabbath is made for man and not man for the Sabbath, and then he goes on in verse 28 and says something that's just outrageously shocking in that day so the son of man he says is lord even of the sabbath jesus is saying i am lord of the sabbath he didn't just say i have divine authority to change the sabbath he didn't just say i'm lord over the sabbath he's basically saying to us i am the sabbath And this goes back to what we've we've talked about before, but it's so important just to keep recognizing this, that Jesus is so deeply aware of who he is from so early in his ministry. He understands that he is God, the creator of all that is. And he's making these claims to being divine, to being the Lord. And the reality is that no other human being that I can think of in all of history has ever made this claim. Now, You're going to object to that for a second, but listen, we've heard people talk about being divine. In our day and age, most people who say that are really thinking about a pantheistic idea where the divine is in everything and the divine is all of us and I'm a part of it and all that kind of stuff. And We we talked about that a few weeks ago and we talked about the incarnation, the difference between that and what that means, right? Uh, And the other people we can think about in the world who have claimed to be divine, because there have been people who have claimed that, I think if we really thought about it, we would all categorize them as lunatics or power-mongering mong- power lunatics combined, right? They were emperors who declared they were divine to scare their people and make them follow them better and get richer. They were lunatics who, who for a time lasted, but there has been nobody in all of history... There has been no religion founded that survives long-term who has claimed that the founder was God, the only God creator of all that is. And Jesus is so aware of this. I mean, even from the standpoint, when we read the Bible, the prophets and other people say, thus saith the Lord. And Jesus himself just says, truly, truly, I say to you. I mean, it's so, he's so aware of it. And, and here's the deal that Jesus is saying we either have to accept the fact that Jesus is a lunatic or he is who he says he is and there's really no middle ground. I mean, so many people like to think about Jesus as a a nice teacher. But that just shows you haven't read who the real Jesus is and what he says about himself. The eyewitness accounts of the words of Jesus himself leave us with one question. Is he a lunatic or is he really God? The one and only God creator of all that exists. Ultimately, our decision, and, and, and the amazing thing with Jesus is he's so patient with our process to getting to this point of decision in our lives, but ultimately, the decision comes down to we need to either dis- discard Jesus as a lunatic, or we need to fall at his feet in complete humility and, imbe- and obey him in all things, and, and that challenges us. I mean, some of us even say, you know, Jesus is amazing in my life. I, I don't always pray like I should. I don't come to him on a regular basis. But when I do come and pray, I find him. And, and that, that's just such an amazing illustration of how patient and how forgiving God is and how he's, he's content to continue to pursue us in our process. But I have to ask the question to that, really? 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 We, we just pray occasionally, we just read the Bible occasionally, we just selectively choose to do some things occasionally, really, because either he is a lunatic and he doesn't exist and we're praying to err, or he is who he says he is, and if he is who he says he is, then it takes a lot of gall to treat him casually, to pray just occasionally, to say, well, I'll obey this, and I won't be, I'm won't. i not so sure about that, I don't really want to do that, and I'll, I'll just selectively obey or partially obey. Jesus is declaring in this passage that he is Lord, but he's also declaring that he is the definition of Sabbath. And in that, there's a challenge to all of us. The Sabbath is, is a term that just means the this, this sense of deep rest, the sense of deep peace. It's a, it's a near synonym to the word shalom, which we're all very familiar with. And the whole idea of one day a week set aside, you know, that's just, a, that's just a minor, small representation of what this really means and what Jesus is really saying. We see it a little bit more explicitly in Hebrews chapters 4 and 5 where it talks a whole lot about God inviting us into this deep place of rest in the midst of our life. And we see Jesus talk about it in Matthew 11 where he says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And all throughout the Bible, when we read about the, passage, uh, the, the passages about the Sabbath, it's always tied to the creation account. It's always tied to God created for six days, and when he was finished, he rested. Was God tired? Did he just work really hard so that, like me, I ran too hard the last few weeks and I had to put ice packs on and nurse shin splints? Did did God just need that? I mean, was he just tired? Did he need to rest? Was he physically weary, emotionally weary? Did he need that? I I don't think so. When we look at what Sabbath means from the creation standpoint where it originated, It really is this beautiful idea of this rest of being able to sit back and take a look at your work that has been very, very good, in God's case, perfect, amazing, and just enjoy it. Just revel in the good that God has done in your life and through your life and take a moment to celebrate and enjoy it. It, I think it's most easily maybe illustrated in the lives of Eric Liddell and Harold Abrams, Chariots of Fire made them famous, the movie. But they were two of the fastest sprinters in the 1920s. Both went to the Olympics. And Eric Liddell is quoted as saying this. He says, I run I run because God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And, and when he says that, you just get this sense of this, this great acceptance he has from God, this great sense of love that just overflows and that's the reason he runs Harold Abraham, Abrams was quoted as saying when the gun goes off I have ten seconds to prove myself and that really is an illustration of the difference between religion and gospel between understanding the rest that God wants to bring to our lives and drivenness At creation, God said at the end of six days it is finished and he rested. And Jesus upon the cross came to a point where he said it is finished upon the completion of his work on the cross. Think about what that means. At the end of creation, it is finished. Everything's perfect still. God looks at it and just revels in the beauty of it. And Jesus, when he's done on the cross, taking our sin, offering us forgiveness that is complete, says it is finished, it's complete, and he rests and revels in the view of who we are. Even though that's not completely worked out yet in our lives, he looks at us as though it is and revels in who we are. And he invites us to revel in the same thing. To rest in that completed work of forgiveness, in his guarantee that he will finish the job, that he has done everything necessary to finish it and will finish it, so that even in the sad dissonance of our lives where we are continuing to struggle with weakness and failure and unconquered sin that rears its head in our lives, even in the midst of that, the rest he's inviting us into is a peace And a contentment even in the midst of that. Because he's the author. He's the Lord. He's the essence of the Sabbath. He gives us those things internally. You see, Christianity should be so much different than any other religion. Our love should cut through differences. And a relationship should be strong in places that make people go, I I don't understand that. Even get angry at it. Our rest and our peace should be so deep and can be so deep, not just based on performance or, or our veneer and our denial of reality. It's not about serving rules. It's about serving a person. It's not about even in selling people on the ideas and the morals that we want them to follow as Christians, but to introducing them to the Lord of the universe who can bring them the same peace that we have, even in the dissonance of life, even in the difficulty of life. It's not about praying so we can get something. It's, it's communing with a God who pursues us and loves us and gives us all that we need and makes us all that we are. A God who has every right to punish us, but instead took the punishment upon himself and he offers us peace and rest. Christianity should be so different than religion, is it? No but it can be for each one of us. If we'll stop saving ourselves and we'll, if we'll allow the cross to come near to us. This cross that Jesus already bled and died on, already took our sins, this cross that is a light to us because we don't have to bear it as punishment for our sins. He already did it. We get to follow Him and surrender there his cross is near and i'm not much of a salesman i struggle at times with marketing but i want to encourage you to lose your religion and to invite the whole community to join you in doing that there is power not power in my words, not power in the band's words, not power in what I'm saying. There's power in the words that we've talked about today to change the lives of your life, your, your family's life, your, our community, our friends, our colleagues, because this is the message of the real Jesus. Our community is very religious, even those who sit out there and don't go to church. They need to lose their religion. I want, you, I want you to pray this week. I want you to invite neighbors. I want you to take cards and invite people you don't even know by putting something on their post office box. This time of year when our religious culture is most likely to respond because it's Easter, one of the two or three times they come, I want you to invite people. And I want you to pray in the trust that it's not going to be our words, it's not going to be the cool skit we have, even though we've got a cool skit. It's going to be God that teaches them the difference between religion and knowing Him. That they too can experience this deep Sabbath rest. That even in the midst of their struggles, they can walk that day in the midst of struggles with a sense of peace and love, even joy that they never thought they could walk in. And I want to invite all of us into that too. Lord, I pray that you'd continue to come to us and that for each and every one of us that your spirit would put your finger on the areas where we are bound by religious thinking. That you would teach us to love you and to sense your presence and to receive your forgiveness, to remove the barriers, to remove the dishonesty, to remove the veneer that we hide behind, the masks that we hide behind, to to accept the fullness of your grace and your forgiveness. And Lord, would you pour out through us to change our community as well.